All right, well, good morning. We're so glad you guys are joining us this morning. Uh, Would you please pray with me before we dive into God's word? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this new day. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you for your love, Lord. Uh, And we, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts, that you would help us to be hearers of it, not simply hearers, but doers of your word, Lord. And so we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us, that we can know you, that we can know your love, and that we can uh, see the things that you have done for us through your word. And so we thank you for uh, Romans as we're continuing our study this morning, Lord. Um, And and we just pray that you would encourage our hearts from it. Uh, You would challenge us. uh, You would draw us closer to yourself. Um, So, Lord, go before us today. Uh, We praise you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, last week we looked at Romans chapter 4. We, did, we looked at the entire chapter of Romans 4, and Paul was doing a kind of like a case study on Abraham, showing that Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. That his faith, his belief that God could and would do what he promised to do, was counted to Abraham as righteousness. It was nothing that Abraham did. This was, you know, long before Abraham was circumcised. It was simply by faith in God, apart from works of the law, that was credited to him as righteousness. And so because of that, uh, we see salvation is through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. That is what saves us, period. But that's not all. Paul is not done expounding on the gospel and and showing the results of justification. Uh, He's not done by a long shot. And so this morning we're going to see the results of justification, of what Christ has done and and our justification by faith. Um, So open up with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. Paul writes, Therefore, Since we have been justified by faith. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith. He showed us the entire chapter 4. We've been justified by faith. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Of God. So because we are justified, made just as if I'd never sinned, by faith, as chapter 4 points out, that Abraham and David knew and lived by, and, and which was finally seen and fulfilled at the cross, uh, Paul is saying, in light of all of what we've seen, here are three realities that justification brings. First, there is peace with God. There's peace with God, meaning that there was once not peace with God. Because until salvation, there is hostility between us and God. When we disobey God, we we not only break his law, but we do so rebelliously, setting ourselves above and against God. So in essence, we are claiming kingship over ourselves and over our world. That is exactly what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. And from this brings hostility between us and God, because who is the actual king and ruler of everything? God is. God alone, and he claims kingship over all things. So God's anger is, is not the same as ours, uh, you know, ours being you know, vindictive, 
Uh, God's anger is legal. There is a legal sentencing on us. There is a bounty on our lives that cannot be uh, wished away. There's no way we could pay it on our own. We cannot achieve peace with God on our own. A price had to be paid. And through faith in Christ, that price was paid in full on the cross so that we can be justified. So hostility ceases and there is peace between us and God. That's not all. Second thing justification brings is that it isn't simply that we lay down arms. It is also that, verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, that freely given gift of grace, the unmerited favor of God in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So, so this access to grace means uh, we are given this favor from which we can draw near to God. We can draw near to God. In, in Christ, we are ushered into God's presence. So justification is not merely the removal of sin and the removal, removal of hostility. It brings about a coming together in relationship. We are at peace and we have access. Um, and, and from that access to God comes relationships. Uh, it's an amazing thing. We have a relationship with God. Uh, at the end of uh, World War II, hostilities ceased between uh, us in Germany and us in Japan, and we laid down arms. And then we had access. And that access, the opening up of borders and peaceful relations, brought about the possibility for positive interactions, like uh, developing trade agreements and, and partnerships. And, and this leads to relationships, and then trusted relationships become friendships. And God has given us access. He has, he has brought peace between himself and us. And he has told us his plans of what is coming, what he's going to do. And, and because of that, he says, you know my plans, and, and I'm calling you my friends. Jesus said to his disciples, you know what is to come. So we know him. Uh, we know his plans for us. And we love him as he knows and loves us. There's no greater news than becoming friends with God. <laughs> Meditate on that this week. I'd encourage you to, to man, contemplate what it means to be friends with God, to know him and that he knows you and loves you. We can go to God continually with everything and anything, making our requests made known to him, bringing our problems to him, our failures to him, and our desires to him, and he hears us and he relates to us. And then the third thing justification brings is the hope of the glory of God. This is a hope of anticipation of the glory to come. And so it is a hope that is not wishful thinking. It is a hope of being convinced in our heart of being certain. Hebrews 11 verse 1 teaches us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So since we have been justified by faith, we rejoice in the hope, in the assured hope of the glory of God. And the more we experience the, the peace and the access to the Father, the more we long to be with him, and the more certain and excited we get to be about the future and the glory of heaven. So, so heaven no longer becomes this abstract thing. It is, it is being with God having continual access to the very presence of God. You know, we, we get small tastes of it now, of his presence, 
having his spirit in us and, and with us, but it, it's only a foretaste, and that causes us to want more and more of God until we're finally face-to-face with him. And man, that's going to be good. So justification by faith brings about peace and access and hope. Peace with God means we're free from our past record of sin and rebellion. Access means we can presently enjoy a relationship with God, and then we hope in the future assurance of the glory of God, living in the full presence of God's glory one day, being face-to-face with him. So peace and access to God brings hope and joy. Verse 3, and we'll see, uh, Paul, he's just getting started here. He says, not only that, Not only do we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And this this chain of events. This sequence might sound somewhat familiar uh, to some of you, and that's because it shows up elsewhere in Scripture, as in James uh, chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, where James writes, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then also we see a similar list in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. Uh, uh, the Apostle Peter writes of this. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we see from these, that we rejoice in our sufferings, not for suffering's sake, but for what it produces in us. It is in humility that we rejoice in suffering, knowing that it is only by God's grace. So we don't rejoice in suffering, you know, by having this superior attitude uh, toward people uh, who have an easier life than us. Like, oh, I've suffered more than you. I mean, this, this pride. No, no, we rejoice in the trials we faced for the growth that it produces in us. And this Christian ethic runs completely counter to the notion of being prideful in our sufferings or being resentful of those who have not experienced the level of suffering we have. The world would say, man, take pride in your suffering and resent the, the, the rich or the, or the ones who've had it easy. And the fruit of that, the fruit of that is bitterness. It's resentment and it's violence. But the scripture says, When you're in Christ, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Rejoice in suffering for what it produces in you. It is more precious than gold or silver. It it is more precious than ease of life or comfort or luxury. For as Paul says, we rejoice knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance is a determination. It's a focus. It is a pruning that takes place and it removes all the fluff. It removes all the distractions, anything that's weighing us down that might keep us from completing the race. Man, it's all got to go. It's all got to go. So we eliminate all the things that, that might take our gaze off of God. Suffering strips it all away so that we seek God alone. It's like in suffering, you know, we realize we are in the desert 
Okay, and the sun is beating down on us, and our only respite is the water of life. So we make a beeline toward the well, and we find that the well is nearer than we remembered. And it's full of cool and life-giving water. The water that, that when we drink it, it hydrates us. It hydrates our, our tongue that was dry and our cotton mouth. Our tongue was sticking to the roof of our mouth. We drink that cool water of life. It reminds us that we've been so consumed with silly things like, like, like what I'm wearing or, or what, he said, what he said, what she said. And we have not been consumed with the things that matter most, like the life-giving water that is the only thing sustaining us in this broken world. That's what suffering does in us. Notice Paul is addressing you know, the subject right after clarifying we are justified by faith, not by works of the law. And therefore, this changes our view of suffering. You know, if we face suffering with an understanding of justification by grace alone, I mean, your joy in that grace is going to deepen. On the other hand, if you face suffering with a mindset of justification by works, the suffering will break you. It will break you. For it is when we suffer that we discover where we are truly putting our trust, where we're truly putting our hope. Are we putting it in ourselves, in the world, in other people, or are we putting it in God? See, suffering strips it all away. It lays bare the futility of hoping in a broken world, and it demonstrates the endurance that comes through hope in Christ. So through suffering, we become those who are pruned and and freed from distractions, being reminded of what really is lasting, what really matters. And so we realign our priorities because if we don't, we would not last another moment before being overcome by the weight of suffering. It's a radical realignment for us. And in that realignment, we gain endurance. And that endurance produces something even more precious. It produces character. The word character meaning testedness. It is something that is tested and proven. So character leads to confidence from having come through an intense season or experience where we trusted and endured and followed through in our duty despite all the obstacles. And the result is a tested and proven faith in Christ. It's it's like the show Forged in Fire. I I don't know if you've seen it, but it's good. I would would encourage you to check it out. Uh, in In the first round of the show, these guys, they get three hours uh, to make a blade to certain specifications. And, and if they meet the specs, uh, their blade is then tested for strength and sharpness and for retaining its edge. And, and the most important step for maintaining the strength of the blade during the testing phase is the heat treat. The heat treat. So for the heat treat, they have to turn up the heat on the blade, uh, bringing it to this glowing yellow color as it's enduring all this heat. And then when it's ready, then comes the quench. And, and everyone gets nervous about the quench because it's a sudden shock to the blade as it's dipped in cool oil. And when it's dipped, if the blade is not heated and, and, and shaped correctly, uh, or if there's impurities in the metal, the quench might cause the blade to snap or to bend or to become brittle or to develop cracks in it. And all, all that, that pain and suffering that went into making it was for naught. In that one moment when it was put to the ultimate test, it broke. And the test unbiasedly shows the blade's true colors, its true quality. And if the blade is true and care was taken during the forging process, the quench serves 
as a hardening of the blade. That will allow the blade to be slammed into this chunk of ice repeatedly or into antler horns repeatedly and not lose its edge. So when the blade is tested against rope and ice and and whatever else, you know, the show throws at the blade and the blade passes the test, the blade is proven. So you can be confident in the blade for any and all testing to come and for any purposes it's going to be used for. It's proved its character. So uh, we rejoice in that, right? When, When a guy sees his blade made it through the test and succeeded in it, man, he's like, yes, my blade made it. Man, so there's a rejoicing in that. It's that endurance that produces the character, that testedness that shows, yeah, it was made well. Through it, through the fire, through the hardening, man, it was made to last. Just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were cast into the raging furnace for their faithfulness to God, refusing to bow to that golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And, and, and when they were thrown into the furnace, not a hair on their head was singed, for with them in the furnace was a fourth figure, one like a son of man. And he guarded them in the furnace in that fiery trial so that when they came out of it, they had not only endured by faith, but they walked out with character that was tested and proven. And so all who witnessed it worshiped the true God. So our tested endurance, our character is a witness to the faithful one who is with us always as our sustainer. And it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. As as, as Paul says, character produces hope because a tested faith is a true faith, and a true faith has great hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, says Paul. God's love has been poured into your heart. His love has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit. The down payment, the the promise of your future inheritance, the comforter, the teacher, the helper, who has been given to you as an outpouring of God's love into your heart because God is with you. He is for you. He loves you. He's poured out his love on you. Never forget that. Man, never downplay the love of God. It is vast. It is generous. It is for you and for those who love him. And suffering drives us to God, to the one place where we find real hope. It brings God closer to us than ever before, for for we know it's not punishment from God, the suffering that we face here, the trials we face, because Jesus took all of that on the cross. So the suffering we face instead drives us towards God, producing endurance and character and hope. And in that, we experience more of his love and more of his faithfulness. When we come out the other side, we realize that God is nearer than ever before, and the storm only drove our roots deeper into Christ, the rock of ages. In John 16, Jesus says, speaking to his disciples, he says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So we know there will be trials, we know there will be tribulations, there will be suffering, but what changes all of it is that Jesus has overcome. 
He's overcome the world. So we're no longer going from defeat to defeat, from suffering to suffering, from trial to trial. It's not a long journey of misery, you know, while we desperately seek distraction and escape from it all. No, because of Jesus, we're no longer living in defeat. We're living in hope. So yes, as Jesus says, this life won't be easy. It won't be easy. But as we journey with Christ, we should expect two things simultaneously. First, we should expect trials and tribulation and suffering. We should expect trouble. But also, simultaneously, we should expect Christ's sustaining victory. For he has overcome the world. Jesus overcame in every way so that he could be the perfect atonement for all who trust in him. See, Jesus, while on the earth, faced everything that we will face. He faced every trial, every tribulation, every suffering, every temptation we face, and he overcame. Where all have failed, Jesus overcame, and he promises to be with us today. And so we are not alone in this, for he didn't face these trials and tribulations alone either. Jesus did it in fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, continually seeking to be with the Father, sneaking away to go and pray alone with his Father, to commune with him. And the Holy Spirit, we know, was with him and upon him. For at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove on him. And the the voice of the Father spoke love and blessing over the Son. So Jesus demonstrates to us the necessity of communion with the triune God. The necessity of us to fully rely on him in and through all things. And when we do that, we know that we are strengthened by the one who went before us. The good shepherd who went before us, who suffered here, not for what he did, but for what we did. And he endured it for the joy set before him. The joy of reconciling us to himself. So because of this, we know God is not aloof in our suffering. How could he be? He experienced it all in the flesh. He truly knows how difficult it can be. And yet he never sinned. He never gave in to temptation. He never called it quits. He obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross. And through the cross and the resurrection, he not only made a way, he has shown us the way. And the way is taking up your cross and following him. Following him, it is dying to this world so that and because we share in his resurrection. So we see his suffering was not purposeless. Likewise, our suffering is not purposeless either. It once was, apart from Christ, it is. But now in Christ, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And that's good news. That is good news. Moving on, verse six. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So God's timing is perfect. It is never late. It's never early. It is in season. The absolute best time, the needed time, the appointed time. Christ died at the right time. You know, we we might wonder, you know, why uh, did, did Jesus wait so long until he came? You know, you know, why did he wait so long after the fall? To, to make that sacrifice. But for God's purposes, it was the exact right time. See, the law and the prophets were established and pointed to the, the need that we have for a Savior and the way that need would be fulfilled 
the unblemished one, the sinless one, would shed his blood. For we know the wages of sin is death. And then he came. And at the time when, when he came, the, the world spoke a common language because of Alexander the Great and what's known as Hellenization. Greek, the Greek language became the common language. And, and furthermore, uh, the world was connected by the Roman Empire and their love of building roads. Uh, uh, so these things meant the, that word could spread faster than ever before uh, that time, but not so fast as to derail the mission and purposes of Jesus. Um, and, so, and so on and on we can describe the, the perfect timing of God coming at that time. It was the right time. It was the perfect time for him to come, to lay his life down, to be that atoning sacrifice, to die for the ungodly. Verse 7 For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, sinners, those in opposition to God, the holy and the perfect one, in whom there is no sin and who finds sin abhorrent, while we were still sinners in opposition to God, Christ died for us. This goes against all of our human sensibilities. Which one of us would lay down their life for a a man on death row today? Which one of us? Saying, saying, no, I'll take his place. Hang me instead. That's what God did for us. God's love surpasses our comprehension. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, for the ungodly. This is the quality of God's love. God loves those he disagrees with. He loves the unlovely. God invites us to love everyone, no matter who they are. It doesn't matter their style, their their likes and dislikes, their thoughts and ideas. He's inviting us and calling us to love them. And then in love, we can talk to them about all sorts of things. That's a timely message. Our culture today says, I can only love you if you agree with me. That's not how God is. That is not the love of God, for he died for his enemies. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. From the wrath of God against all ungodliness. Remember Romans 1, 2, and 3. God's wrath that is stored up for the day of judgment. We are saved by Christ from the wrath of God who took it upon himself on the cross. Verse 10. For if... While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So the cross justified us. So how much more does the resurrection save us to eternal life? Verse 11, more than that. (laughs) Paul's fired up, man. He's preaching. More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Again, as in chapter four and every chapter before it, it all comes back to Jesus. And in Jesus, we're not just covered. We're not only saved. We have restored relationship with God. That's a wonderful thing. So Romans five, Paul says, because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God and we have access to God, and we have hope in God. So suffering does not destroy us, but it refines us. It does not destroy our hope. Rather, it solidifies our hope through endurance, 
that produces character that leads to hope. And the best news of all is that we can have an eternally restored relationship with God. An eternally restored relationship with God. Do you have that this morning? Do you know him? And if you uh, know him, man, how is your relationship with him this morning? For God desires to pour out his love on you. And God might be bringing you th- through something right now for his very purpose of getting you on your knees before him so that he can pour out his love on you and that you may know him better, know his faithfulness more, that he is with you in all things. Receive the love of God this morning. Trust in him anew. Rejoice in him. Take hope in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you loved us first, that while we were yet enemies of you, while we were still in sin, you came and you laid down your life for us, Lord. What love, God, what love that is. Lord, may we take upon ourselves the likeness of Christ Jesus, demonstrating that same love to those you've put in our life. May we love as Christ loved, loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, Lord. Lord, give us your eyes to see. Give us your heart, Lord. Thank you that through our suffering, you can bring about endurance. Through that endurance, you can bring about a new character in us, a testedness, and that brings about hope. So Lord, may we be a people of hope, hoping in the assurance of your salvation and the assurance of one day being face to face with you. And our hearts so long for that, Lord. Our hearts so long for that one day of being with you again. So God, draw near to us as we draw near to you. Go before us this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.